Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Claire McKenna. You're listening to Changemakers, the podcast series that talks to people who stand up, speak out, or just challenge us to think a little differently. And you're very welcome to episode one of my podcast series. When I started out in broadcast, it was TV and radio, and that was pretty much it. Social media was only beginning, but it wasn't at the level it is now, where it's basically like another channel. And podcasting has also blown up over the last few years. I'm an avid listener to many, and I love the length of a podcast. The longer listen really does allow for a deep dive into a topic or a person. So here I am jumping on the bandwagon. But it is with a subject that I am truly passionate about. I have always been fascinated by the people who find what it is they're passionate about in life and run with it. They're motivated to make a difference in the world. They're change makers. I've learned so much and been inspired by many of the people that I've listened to on other podcasts, and I really hope that you will be too. I never want this to be something that's preaching at you or that you'd come away thinking, oh God, I should be doing more, but that you would be inspired and realize that even small incremental changes can make a big impact. And sometimes that starts with forming an opinion. Up First is an absolute firecracker who has had a massive impact on my life, Associate Nutritionist and Intuitive Eating Counsellor Carla Braden. I met Carla through work at a time in my life when the cogs in my head were beginning to change about health and wellness and how our endeavours in that area should be more nourishing than punishing. I had just completed a year of working with a number of experts in conjunction with my radio show on News Talk and articles were also featured monitoring my progress in Life magazine. I had started out with good intentions, but still, if I'm honest, underneath it all, I was dreaming of unleashing my new lean body in photographs at the end of the year to the adoring crowd and pat myself on the back. But the more I went through the year and the more I delved into the complexities of our relationship with food, our mindset and our motivation and ultimately our self-worth, I did a 180 and became far more interested in how I felt as opposed to how I looked. But I wasn't fully there. The seed had certainly been sown and germinated, but I still had learning to do on the topic. And that's when I met Carla. And hearing her speak about diet culture and how it permeates into so much of what we do and how it's holding so many women and a growing number of men back in life. How fat phobia and a constant focus on weight as the single indicator of human health is having a massive impact on our ability to receive correct health care. And it doesn't take into account the nuances associated with everyday life. 
Since then, I've come to the realisation that this is one of the biggest issues facing us right now and something that so needs to be talked about more. There are so many rules and restrictions around food, our exercise and our bodies, and it creates such a negative spiral. I so wish I'd heard Carla's message and the message of anti-diet culture and health at every size when I was a younger girl and teenager, but I'm really excited for you to hear it today. I will leave ways for you to find out more in the show notes. I hope you enjoy. And Carla Braden joins me now. Hello, Carla. Hiya, Claire. How's it going? Let's go back a little bit um, to you, because what's always interested me about you and your message is that you started out, your first um, studies were in politics and sociology before you moved in to nutrition. And you always say that that's the lens with which you view your work. Um, And I think people forget, I think we start to believe that politics... um, is something that just goes on on radio station panels and in the pages of a newspaper. And we forget that how we set up a society literally impacts how we live our everyday lives. And, and we are politics and, and we are sociology. It's We are the society. There is this um, image that I use when I'm given presentations. So it's like a four-tier image that starts at the individual And then it moves out to the interpersonal and then it moves out to the uh, institutional and then the the culture. So these four tiers are the way that change happens. And sometimes um, that change is like a bottom up understanding. And a lot of people think that their lives are kind of... um, lived from a top-down understanding so everything's coming down from the top at them so there's the culture it comes down through the institutions we're all kind of swimming in living our lives through that then it interferes with our interpersonal relationships and it affects us as individuals and that is true that is exactly what we're seeing with something like diet culture right it is a it is a an understanding that we have assimilated because it's come from the top down. But this bottom up understanding of, you know, again, in Ireland, we're so lucky with our grassroots organizations. It's people taking a stand, taking a mission, um, sharing that interpersonally, getting a collective together so that they go to these institutions demanding change and then the culture changes. The bulk of my work is is that individual level, right? So I'm in clinical practice working one-to-one with people as a nutritionist and most of my work is in the individual. But the more individuals I work with, the more they can have conversations between themselves and the more this awareness spreads up into the institutions and up into the culture. Yeah, and as you say, it's the bottom up, it's the human story that begins the spiral to advocate for change. So you moved into nutrition then. Why did that come about and how did that come about? I um, was working as a practice manager for uh, two GPs in Dublin. And that was that was my full-time job. Um, I did that for six years. And very early on, um, I, I really became interested in the 
patience. Um, and so it, it's the Donegal woman in me. And I think a lot of people were really surprised that I would like remember their names and have the chats, you know, because sometimes the city can be quite, um, uh, what's the word, like anonymous and, you know, not many people do know your name, but um so I would like have the chats with patients and then I was really interested in them. And, you know, when we would have lunch, um, myself and the doctors or the two doctors would be kind of consulting with each other on cases and I'd be so fascinated by it. And so I spoke to them about like options for kind of getting involved. Like I really didn't know what I was like, will I go back and do medicine? Will I? And I was like in my late 20s at this stage. Um, will I go back and do medicine? Will I um, go into psychology or psychotherapy? Or um, could I go into nutrition? And so um, because I was working full time, my options were a bit limited to what I could do. But I went um, and I did a four year diploma in um, nutritional therapy so that was kind of my introduction into nutrition and it was it was really wonderful it was really eye-opening but to me it just it felt like it only scratched the surface of an understanding of of um, nutrition and what what it could offer people and I was at the time I was particularly interested in lifestyle medicine as it was known back then um so it was like what we would refer to as life a diet and lifestyle related diseases so things like high blood pressure high cholesterol um fatty liver disease type 2 diabetes or insulin resistance like a lot of these um conditions are understood to come from a, a diet and lifestyle perspective and so I just wanted to learn more. Um, and so I applied for the master's in nutritional medicine in Surrey in the UK and got in, but was told in no uncertain terms, you're going to have to work hard in here because um, I wasn't coming from a BSc in nutrition. I was coming from a diploma in nutrition and it was such a learning curve. Oh my goodness. Like it was really, really intense. Um, and so like I was doing private grinds in science and like really trying to get a handle on the intricacies of of nutrition science. Um, but I did. I smashed it. I loved it. It was incredible. And the, the master's itself was kind of geared towards... Um, medical practitioners or people who work with patients already and want to kind of have a another string to their bow in helping manage conditions. So then I went out, I went out into the world as a registered nutritionist and was like, right, I'm going to help people sort out all these lifestyle diseases. I'm going to build incredible nutrition plans. I'm going to tell people what to eat, what not to eat. I'm going to um, offer like loads of compassion and do this thing that I've wanted to do for a long time and so I did and I'd say 
within six months, I was like, oh, oh, this is, there is something else going on here. So like when I say that, what I'm referring to is the emotional burden of feeling like you are solely responsible for your health, that you have type 2 diabetes because you caused it. It's your fault. And so if you do this, this, and this, you won't have type 2 diabetes. So go do that. And then people would go into their messy, complex, um, like very complicated lives with someone who doesn't understand the full complexity of their life, just saying, do this, this, and this. And they'd come back and they'd be like, I, I didn't do it. I couldn't. I tried and I failed. And so the burden for me of that, of like, I'm trying to help and all I'm doing is harming, it became really clear really quickly that nutrition is incredibly important. And, you know, I've spent the guts of 10 years studying it now, but it is only one facet of of health and the conversation just has to be way, way bigger. And during all your years of study, the diploma and then going to Surrey, was there ever any discussion of diet culture or things on that more societal level? Or was it literally just the the nuts and bolts of the science behind nutrition? Yeah, it was it was there was no talk of of diet culture. There was no talk of weight stigma. There was no talk of fat phobia. There was no talk of um, of kind of person centered care. And it, it comes up in public health all the time where we have this kind of base level understanding of things. And we're trying to put messaging out into society for the greater good. But it doesn't take into account the complexities of of individuals living with um, with trauma, with um, disease, with uh, disability, with um, you know additional needs that actually feel make it feel almost impossible to to put this information into practice. And I myself, as a practitioner for all this time was very weight centric because that was the teaching. It was like, um, you know, for this, for this um, condition, if you lose between um, three and 7% of body weight, um, you see this kind of disease attenuation over six months. Um, So maybe go tell your clients to do that. And I did and it worked for three months, six months, but it didn't work much longer after that. And then you have people feeling like they're failures, which is just really, it's really hard to hold space for that kind of um, uh, sadness and, and sense of failure um, that someone is holding as 100% their personal responsibility. Yeah. And it's that cycle of fail that just continues to work at the self-worth. And as you say, we're not we're not machines. You can have a plan and you can have the, the science, but we are emotional beings with all kinds of different backgrounds, everything from socioeconomic to 
our, our, our trauma, our lifestyle. So you found your way through a bit of research into the whole area of diet culture. So what is diet culture, first off? It, the general understanding of diet culture is that it is this um, system of beliefs that equates a smaller body with a better body. So it, it's an understanding that um, your body size defines your overall health. And so when you're smaller, you're healthier. When you're bigger, you're not as healthy. Um, it kind of, it glorifies um, thin bodies, toned and muscular bodies. Um, it often also is is steeped, actually not often, it is steeped in white supremacy. So um, like the beauty industry, the fitness industry, the wellness industry, um, are all kind of operating within this diet culture lens where we have an image of the kind of perfect body. And that image is often small, white, um, Eurocentric features, uh, little muscular, little toned, very little body fat. Um, so that in a nutshell is what diet culture is. And it it permeates everything, you know, it permeates all our media, our entertainment, music, um, and then all these fitness, beauty and wellness industries are particularly saturated with it. And I was, I've been thinking about it, obviously, in the, in, in the run up to this conversation and wondering where it came from, because, you know, if you look back historically, uh, bodies were quite covered, you know, any of the Jane Austen type era, even seeing an ankle, you know, was just, you know, a, a very sexualized moment. Um, and then there was a time where being larger was celebrated because that was an, an indication of of wealth and you had all the art was all that type of look. So when do you think it happened that smaller became better. And I, I know it's moving more into to men, but particularly for women, we are very much centered and judged on the way that we look and have been historically. So where do you think that came into play? One of the best books I've read about this exact topic is called Fearing the Black Body by Sabrina Strings. Um, she's a doctor, a doctorate researcher in the States. And so she has done this massive deep dive into where, into the origins of fat phobia. Now, it is, it's a really intense read um, because it starts exactly like you're describing in the 17th century and these kind of Rubenesque paintings and this understanding of, of voluptuous women as being the ideal and she breaks it down like every 50 years, um, the kind of generational changes that came about. And you best believe it comes from a colonialist, white supremacist, uh, sexist understanding of the world. Um, and so it really, it really kicked off kind of in the late 19th century in the States. Um, and that is 
what's really interesting from an Irish perspective is that um, a lot of the a lot of the thinking at the time was um, really oppressive and discriminatory to uh, black bodies and Irish bodies, and so a lot of the conversation at the time kind of lumped the two together um and you know irish women in the states were thought of as you know unattractive um uh uh kind of gluttonous and uh undomesticated and all this kind of stuff like it's a really interesting deep dive into where these prejudices um started um, and so that American beauty ideal is an Anglo-Saxon Protestant ideal. It's a kind of slender, refined woman in control of herself, uh, godly, right? So there was a huge religious component to it of the the more control you have over your personal pleasures, um, the, it's that Protestant asceticism, right? So it's restriction and deprivation are close to godliness. So that's basically where it all stemmed from. And from there, it kind of emanated out into the world through globalization through the 20th century. When I when you think about the idea of the patriarchy and keeping us small, you know, and, and keeping women small and keeping us smaller bodies, smaller voices to be seen and not heard, the idea of the trophy wife and, and, and really would anger most women to think that that's the way it is. And yet, when you think of small talk, it always fascinates me when you get a group of men together, generally they go to sport and they go, did you see the match? And they just judge each other on, you know, the thoughts of what happened in the match and who you support. We say, I love your shoes, I love your bag, I love your hair, have you lost weight? We go straight for how we look. And, you know, women will often say uh, of the heterosexual variety, you know, I don't dress to attract the the opposite sex or to attract anyone. I dress to impress my my peers. So we listen to all this this history and we think, wow, that was then, but this is now. And yet it, it's permeating into every single thing that that we do and and the way we we judge ourselves and like I said to you at the start I thought it was really normal to 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 rate your your food and your weight um and the good foods and the bad foods and the rules and your anti-diet movement says it doesn't necessarily have to be that way and and it must be so empowering and so liberating for the people who find their way in front of you as a client Yes, for sure. And I think, you know, that normal versus normative, right? So uh, like checking, checking ourselves, self-objectifying, objectifying our friends and kind of um, bonding with them through this kind of diet talk or um, beauty ideals or, oh, don't look at the state of me, you know, this kind of, um, that has been the normative way that we know to communicate with each other and there is nothing normal about it it's just it has been normalized in our culture and so yeah like when you break free of that 
it is it is incredibly liberating but the process to go through it <laughs> to come out the other end is huge like it is it is such a long journey of and this is this is something i always say when i talk about intuitive eating like the first principle of intuitive eating is reject diet culture and reject the diet mentality and for a lot of people if you take that away so to speak what else have you right so if if you have you know this comes up for women a lot is is their currency of moving through the world has has most often been about their looks um their appearance okay so how they kind of present to the world and that is the water that we're all swimming in so you kind of uh, relegate that to a lesser importance what do you talk about do you talk about how you're really feeling do you talk about things that you really truly care about do you start having difficult and intense conversations yeah, you likely do. And, um, you know, most feminist authors on this talk about diet culture as being a total sedative for women. So when we keep ourselves small, we keep ourselves quiet. So we don't have enough energy because we're not fueling ourselves enough. So we don't have enough energy to be active, engaged citizens. Um, if we don't feel ourselves, we we have like our headspace is completely taken up by calculations, um, calories, compensations. How much exercise do I need to do to offset this thing that I did? Um, headspace taken up with morality, like I'm a bad person for doing this. Oh, I wasn't good enough. Oh, I cheated on my plan. You know, like these these words and these thoughts have become so normalized. But when you really look into what the effect of them has on us and in our interactions with one another, it is incredibly problematic. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
Ade. Are you seeing more men? Is this something that is affecting modern society? Yes, we're talking the patriarchy and we're talking women, and that's 100% a thing. But is it seeping in? I mean, I know male image, particularly in a world of social media, is, is big. There's a body ideal for them as well. Are you meeting male clients as much as women? In my practice, I'm not. Um, and yet I have a very strong understanding of how the patriarchy harms men uh, as well. So, you know, the patriarchy har- harms men and women. It it kind of imbues this sense of masculinity that is incredibly uh, troubling for a lot of men to live up to. Um, and also, you know, traditionally men have less of an outlet for being able to understand themselves and understand their struggles with their body image as well as their own mental health. And there is there is constant awareness raising among men of, you know, it's good to talk, you need to talk, you need to um, engage with people on this. But at the same time, in a patriarchal culture, when men do talk, we're often like, uh, what? I'm not actually used to men being so vulnerable. So, So the whole system impacts us. And so while I don't have male clients that come to me, I think the more understanding we have about how this does impact men, how men, um, you know, there's a statistic that binge eating disorder is the most common eating disorder in men. And, you know, it's just not talked about. And, And the more awareness in general we can raise, the better. And you're right. It's almost as if it's a safer space for women to talk about any kind of disordered eating because we have an understanding that we are going to be so tied up with how we look. It's just very much the norm. And I think it's really important to say um, that while we're talking about the patriarchy, while we're talking about a focus on, on women and their appearance and how it is bleeding a little bit more into men, uh, I, I think it's important to say that there's no demonizing of that. I mean, if you like to wear makeup, if you like to get your hair dyed, you're not anti-feminist. I think we all like to look well. I love fashion. Um, But it's where, where is that featuring in your priorities list and how is that affecting your everyday behavior and your feelings of of self-worth? Because if it's very controlling over you, then chances are it may be beginning from a place of oppression. And it's just worth us even having that in our minds a little more. I, I think you've hit the nail on the head there because that is, that's the bottom line. If it is something that makes you feel good, that, that nourishes you, that gives you a bit of joy, then that is coming from a place of power. And like, that's the most feminist stance you can take is to give yourself that, that sense of ownership of yourself. If it's not, however, if it is coming from a place of, um, of conditioning of, um, 
of low self-esteem unless one is put together because you have such a kind of self-objectifying um view of yourself then that's what needs to get um I think addressed and analyzed and there's nuance to all of this, but I would, I would totally agree if, if, and even when it comes to things like food, when it comes to things like what you put in your body, um, like I'm not anti-nutrition either just because I'm non-diet. Right. So that is something that people ask me about all the time. It's like, well, you've done, you know, you've gone all the way to a master's degree in nutrition. So how can you say that food doesn't matter or diets don't work or, but it's the nuance of this conversation is um, food certainly does matter and nutrition certainly does matter, but your relationship to it is, is what us in the non-diet sphere are trying to address. What are you seeing? How are we being impacted by all of that? How is the diet culture manifesting into to everyday life? The main presentation of it is um, a very complex and difficult relationship with food. And when you have to eat three, four, five times a day, seven days a week, to be confronted with that complex and difficult relationship with food 35 to 40 times a week, week in, week out, it becomes exhausting. There's a lot of headspace taken up with that relationship when it goes wrong. Um, And so disordered eating is, um, it's kind of the catch-all term that we use for for a very troubled relationship with food and that can it can look a variety of different ways so it can be restriction so not allowing yourself to eat enough it can be um restriction and then binging so this kind of pendulum swing between one and the other and often when we undereat, eventually the body is just crying out for food. And that's why the pendulum swings so strongly um, with uh, restriction to binging. You know, orthorexia is a term that some people might be familiar with. And this this kind of came um, to public attention maybe in the last five to 10 years. And it's, it's very much wrapped up in the clean eating movement, um, you know, making hierarchies with food, making um, moral judgments with food. And it's kind of coming back to what I was saying about the terminology we use, like, oh, I'm so bad I did this. Um, Oh, I've been really good today because of X, Y, and Z. And the term cheat, you know, like you're a devious person who is doing something very, very wrong. Um, And that that tends to be how in my clinical practice, the presentation of this internalized um, diet culture messaging is showing up. It's people having very complex and um, troubling relationships with food 
also their bodies and their self-image and their um, exercise. Um, And you're a massive advocate for health at every size. And that's another message that we never hear. And it's almost like, as you said, this is our third conversation. We've spoken on radio. We've spoken on an online health talk. I nearly still don't believe you that somebody can be healthy at every size because I obviously have a negativity bias and there is a massive health message out there that we have an obesity epidemic, that we need to focus on our BMI, that it's really important that there's all these health implications with being heavier. So can we wade into the the facts behind that and and how people can be truly healthy at every size? Yeah, I think... Um, It is important to acknowledge this bias that we all have. And I I love that you've been like, I still don't know if I believe it, because why would you when the dominant message is smaller bodies or healthier bodies? Um, And so the health at every size movement is the purpose of it is to develop a deeper understanding of what health actually means. And this is where a lot of the dominant messaging really just gets it wrong in the fact that BMI, a singular number dependent on a, um, well, it's, it's kind of two metrics, right? So it's weight and height, but one number just cannot, cannot define your health. It, it is a reductive, simplistic way to look at a massive complex system, right? So health at every size, what what we're all trying to do is to get people to understand that health includes things like health promoting behaviors, right? So sleep quality and quantity, stress management, movement, the food you eat, the the clean air you breathe or not. So if you're in a polluted city or you're um, drinking contaminated water, um, health also includes your community, your sense of belonging and your sense of purpose. Um, Health also needs to include your socioeconomic background, things like your racial or ethnic identity, your gender and sexual identity. All of these play a role in the way we move through the world. And so to reduce someone's health down to a number on the BMI scale, which was designed as a statistical tool not to be used for the public. It was it was designed by a mathematician, but it was not designed to be used uh, in the way that it has been. So yeah, BMI is is not a good measure of health. It's just not. And I think we are starting to talk about it a little bit more, particularly in an Instagram age where we keep talking the talk that what you see in an image isn't the reality of what's going on. But I don't think we're really believing it because still the number one players at Instagram all fit a certain um, look and ideal. So it's still self-perpetuating. But I do think there is a bit more of an understanding that just because you see an image of somebody who's very slim 
it doesn't mean they're healthy. There can be all sorts going on with their mental health. There can be all sorts going on with their digestion, with their fertility, if their body fat, particularly with women, is at a certain level. And I listened to an interesting um, interview recently with Dr. Alex George. Um, he is a general practitioner. He's, a, he's, he's actually an A&E doctor, but he was on Love Island and he was talking about going on Love Island and having the six pack. But the impact that that had on his health and that for the six months leading up to going on the show, he didn't see any of his friends because he was so afraid if he had a cappuccino or a drink, it was going to derail his whole aesthetic. And yet when people, it's a hugely popular TV series, when people watch that, they look at that as a, as a body ideal. So I think we're talking about it and yet we're still championing that exact look. But I think people will be listening and they'll still be at odds with what the right thing is now. And does that mean that people just are given free reign, particularly when it comes to intuitive eating? And maybe you'd explain a little bit how that works, because I think people assume that that just means we're all going to sit on the couch eating ice cream all day long. And now that's thumbs up because we're healthy in our mind, whereas that's not your message either. Yeah, not at all. And so so intuitive eating has a bunch of different principles that we work through um, one to one with our clients. Um, And so so a big one is kind of um, make peace with food. Right. So within the make peace with food principle, there's an understanding of um, all foods fit um, and you have unconditional permission to eat. And so when people hear that, they're like, oh, no, I can't have unconditional permission to eat, because if you give me permission to eat, I will just eat and eat and eat and eat and eat. Um, You can't give me permission to eat biscuits because once I have one, I have the whole packet and then I have to like do X, Y and Z to compensate. So this is a lot of the kind of understanding of what might happen in this process. What really happens in this process is you go through a very short amount of time giving yourself unconditional permission to eat. And the the whole point behind it is you're de-pedestaling food. So when you have food on a pedestal, either because you think it is sinful, it is your downfall, you can't be trusted around it, then you will always feel out of control around it. But when you give yourself permission that you're allowed to have um, biscuits in the press and if you decide you fancy one, have one and see how it feels. Have another one and see how it feels. Have the whole packet, see how it feels. Buy another packet, put it in the press. Do you want to keep eating? And so this is where the nuance lies with intuitive eating is that often we, we very quickly move into a period of habituation. So when we have put food on a pedestal, we give this food an incredible amount of power. When we take that power away and off it and, and be, stay really present with it, that's the other thing. You might actually be like, these aren't as tasty as I thought they were, or these actually make me feel really ill. I don't want another one. I'm done 
So you you develop this intuitive understanding of how much do you want? What taste are you looking for? And is it actually it? Or is it just because you had this, um, you had a lot of power attached to this food? So I hear that a lot of people being like, oh God, I, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can trust myself. And that is sometimes why having support is so important because if you're there doing it on your own, maybe you do feel a wee bit out of control. Um, but if you have someone to kind of guide you through that process to take you to the point of habituation where you're like, do you know what? I don't fancy another biscuit. I really... I've kind of gone off them now because I've had um, half a packet every day for the last six days and I'm, they're not tasty. They don't make me feel good. And now they can just sit in your press the way cinnamon can or a bag of flour can or a packet of Bisto, right? So it's just a, an ingredient. It's just a food, but it has no power that it's kind of calling to you from the press. But I think it's really interesting because, again, it's not a message that we ever hear. Um, And you also are very accepting of emotional eating, that, of course, there's going to be times in our life when we're going to want comfort food. It's called that because it comforts us. And there are going to be times where we want to overeat to comfort ourselves. But you look at, is that the only tool you're using? And if that is a stress management tool, what what's going on? Was it just one stressful day at the office? That's fine. Or is this happening Every day is this a de- is this something that comforts you or does it end up being detrimental? And I know you you tune in with other counselors or it might recommend um, psychology or, or you know it's it's a it's a person centered approach uh, to why they're eating the way they are or why they're feeling the way they are and it's not something that we hear enough of. So what do you think needs to change? Um, on an individual level, but also on a on a bigger level. I mean, something that I, I've really noticed when it comes to fat phobia and negative bias, even my kids have it. My kids are seven and 10 and I was shocked. I don't mention weight around them, mainly because I didn't want to give them a complex. I wasn't thinking on this larger scale, but I think in the cartoons they're watching, the you know kids' movies they're watching and the books they're reading, the fat kid is the funny kid. The fat kid is the lazy kid. And it's starting from that that young. It, it really permeates in. Yeah, it is. It is 100% there in from very age and appropriate material. So, um, yeah, children are learning this messaging. Um, and it has been constantly reinforced in everything we go to watch or read or listen to. Um, And I think that, again, it's like, do we start at the societal level or do we start at the individual level? And it depends on where we're at and what our resources are. But I think like, you know, having conversations with your kids about all types of diversity, including size diversity, work towards uh, a world that is less discriminatory, that has less bias. And that that does start with us. It starts with our own innate bias, uh, our own understanding that if you're in a bigger body, you can't be healthy um, and dismantling that. Um, how we do that is, it is such a big conversation. Um, but I think 
I, I do always come back to those four tiers, the, the individual, the personal understanding, unpacking, unlearning our biases, the interpersonal, how we're talking to one another, be that um, parent to child, be that uh, peer to peer. Um, and then this kind of institutional level. So asking businesses to be more representative, asking shows and networks to stop promoting bias to um, address problematic behavior when we see it and eventually have that move up into the culture that we have a, a world where um, diversity is accepted as as the the beautiful rich tapestry of being human that we are all different and what we see is a very uh, poor proxy for what's going on. And I think in 2021, it's no longer acceptable for us to live an unexamined life. There is, there is so much wrong with the world that we live in. Um, and so I think it is time to that we all really start examining these biases that we have. And and I I feel very clear about this. Having bias does not make you a bad person. It just makes you a person in the world. We've inherited it. We picked it up from the culture. There is nothing bad about you for holding these biases but if you don't examine them and break them apart and really understand why they're there and why they're problematic then that that is a problem well it certainly feels like we're at a time with the world slowed down the way it is at the minute that we are looking under the bonnet of so much of what's going on and and picking it apart um and i hope as we start back up again that we are resetting a lot of those things and, and doing a lot of that self-analysis and moving to something a lot more positive. Carla Braden, it has been fascinating and eye-opening talking to you and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Claire. Thank you for listening to Changemakers. If you enjoyed the podcast, I would love if you would take a moment. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. To rate, review, and subscribe, it helps other people to find the podcast too. Take care. <laughs>